Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's opened up to Luke, the 19th chapter. And I will invite you to get a Bible out or scooch up next to somebody who's got a Bible and be looking at Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at one verse there in just a moment that's going to set the stage for everything that we're going to talk about for these next few minutes as we open up the Word of God and study together from it. It is great to see everybody this morning. So glad that you are here. If you're visiting with us especially, we're just delighted that you have come to be with us and you honor us with your presence, you encourage us, and we pray that we're able to encourage you as well. If we can be of service to you in some way, especially in a spiritual way, uh, you hopefully you'll give us the opportunity to do just that. Just a joy and a treat to be able to worship with you this morning. I hope you have plans to be back tonight at 6 o'clock, as in many ways the sermon that Cain has prepared for this evening is actually just going to be a continuation of the things that I'm going to be setting the table for here during the morning hour. So let's get all that started this morning in Luke the 19th chapter. Read with me the words of Jesus. This is verse number 10. Jesus says in Luke 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We begin this morning by talking a little bit about socks. Yes, that's right. I want to talk about socks. John Wooden is arguably the greatest coach in the history of college basketball. He coached and he led the UCLA Bruins to 10 national championships in 12 years, including an astonishing seven years consecutively. John Wooden is a legend in coaching circles. And every player who has ever played for Coach Wooden has a story about what it was like when they showed up for the very first day of practice. At the beginning of every single season, Coach Wooden would gather all of his players together and think about the kinds of players he would have. He would have five-star recruits that are coming right out of high school, just talented guys. He would have players that are returning from the previous year's national championship team, talented guys. He would have seniors and upperclassmen, talented guys, gather all of these talented players together in the locker room on the first day of practice, and the first thing that he would say is, now men, this is how you put on your socks, and this is how you tie your shoes. And he would then visually demonstrate how to put on socks and how to tie your shoes. Bill Walton, who was one of those five-star recruits out of high school, ended up being one of the greatest players in college history, ended up having a Hall of Fame career in the NBA. He tells the story about what his reaction was on that first day of practice, and he just spoke up. He said, Coach, what in the world? We're all great basketball players here. Why are we wasting time learning how to put on socks and how to tie our shoes? We know how to do this. Why are we talking about it? And Coach Wooden replied, he said, I'll tell you why we're doing this. If you don't put your socks on right, then you get a blister. And if you get a blister, then you're going to have to sit on the bench. And if you're sitting on the bench, then that affects the whole team. That, Mr. Walton, is why we're learning how to put on socks. Coach Wooden understood that sometimes... You just need to go back to the beginning. You just need to go back to the fundamentals. You need to secure your foundation by just returning to some basics. Hey, here's how you put on your socks. And sometimes, sometimes I wonder if maybe Jesus would say to us, Hey, can we go back to some fundamentals? Can we just revisit some of the basics? 
And no, I'm not talking about how to put on your socks. In all likelihood, Jesus didn't even wear socks. But I'm talking about this stuff right here in Luke 19 and in verse 10. Can we talk about the lost? The lost. Just who are the lost? Why are they lost? What does it mean for a person to be lost? How can we possibly help someone who is lost? Jesus seemed to think that finding and seeking after and saving the lost, that that was pretty fundamental. In fact, Luke 19.10 tells us it's the very reason that He came here. And so it stands to reason then that identifying and helping the lost, that ought to be pretty fundamental. It ought to be pretty core to who and what we are as the followers of Jesus. Just ask yourself, when's the last time that you talk to someone who was lost with an end towards seeing them saved. The truth is, if I asked everybody right now to raise their hand who talked with a lost person in the last seven days about their soul, about Jesus, about the Bible, in a serious sort of way, I imagine that's probably going to be pretty embarrassing for a whole lot of us. Now why is that? Why are we not more diligent in this highly important work, this fundamental work of seeking and saving the lost? Well, maybe the reason for that is, is because we're just not as grounded as we need to be in some of those fundamental truths about the lost. Which is why this morning, I just want to go back and learn how to put on socks. I want to go back and revisit some of those basics. I want to just kind of strip everything down today and I want to talk just very plainly about who are the lost. And in so doing, we're going to come away not just knowing who the lost are. We're going to come away understanding the plight of the lost. We're going to be able to put a face on the lost. And we're going to understand, hopefully most of all, what the lost need from you, what the lost need from me. And I need you to understand this morning that I am preaching this very intentionally. I'm not talking about this today because, well, I just needed something to preach about today. And I need you to understand as well that the goal of this sermon is not just for you to learn something. No, the goal of this sermon is for you to do something. To take seriously the opportunity, nay, the obligation to share the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are lost. And I really believe that the best way that I can motivate you and compel you to do that is just by painting a simple portrait of who the lost are. And I want to begin that with this first idea, and that is that the lost are people who are outside of Christ. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, let's start there, because Paul gives a, a fairly thorough description of what it means to be lost. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is in verse 11. In Ephesians 2 and in verse 11, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who are the lost? 
Paul says the lost are people who are separated from Christ. They are not in His body. Verse 13, they are far off. One translation says, you who were once far away from God. And that's pretty pretty much exactly what we're talking about here. That means that when we talk then about being lost this morning, a person being lost, we're talking about what is similar to what the news might report when they report somebody who is lost at sea. Where are they? They're far away. They're far away from the safety of the shore, from the safety of civilization. And it is important for us to understand exactly why a person would be in that condition. Why would a person be outside of Christ? What exactly causes a person to be lost? Well, Paul answers that for us in Romans chapter 6. In Romans the 6th chapter, and in verse 23, Romans chapter 6 and in verse 23, Paul says there, Romans 6 verse 23, he says that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know why people get lost? Do you want to know why the reason people are lost? The reason people are lost is because they are sinners. And the reason many people stay lost, remain lost, is because they're not seeking after the last half of that verse. They're not seeking after that free gift of salvation, forgiveness that's found in Christ Jesus. It is sin that causes us to be outside of Christ, to be separated from Christ. And it is sin that causes people to be spiritually lost. No one is born lost. No one is predeterminately predestined and decided beforehand and assigned to be in the category of lost. No, a person is lost because they willfully choose to commit sin, to violate and to transgress the very will of God. Until a person chooses to then respond to God's grace and have their sins forgiven, have their sins cleansed, have their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, until a person does that, they're going to continue in that lost condition. And here's the worst news. If a person dies in that condition, then they're going to miss heaven. In fact, let me be even more blunt and straightforward about that. The lost are going to hell. Now, we don't like saying that. I didn't even like saying that just then. There is no good news in that whatsoever. The lost are people who are outside of Christ. The lost are people who are sinners that have not been forgiven. That means that the lost are going to hell. I can't think of a single positive thing to say about being lost. When we say sometimes he's lost or she's lost, really what we're doing when we use that kind of terminology is we're actually kind of covering up the ugly truth that we don't want to have to say, and that is that there are people who are going to go to hell. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul does not mince words about that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look with me in verse 7. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and in verse 7, Paul says here that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, He's going to come with His mighty angels. And He's going to come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His might. That's what being lost is ultimately about. Suffering for all of eternity without God in hell. And I don't like saying that. And I'm guessing you probably don't like hearing that. 
And I don't need to mean to be overly simplistic this morning. And I don't mean to sound harsh in any kind of way. But I'm going to tell you, it is not kind and it is not loving on our part to paper over the grim reality of what the Bible says it means for a person to be lost. And as the people of God, what we need to do is we need to just get reacquainted with these fundamentals. We need to get reacquainted with what a dire circumstance people really are in. The truth is, I think sometimes what we imagine, the preacher gets up and starts talking about lost, the lost lost world in which we live, lost souls. I think what happens is, is we kind of imagine the lost as being this ambiguous, nebulous, just kind of faceless crowd. In fact, I've even got a silhouette of a guy up there. He's kind of faceless. Just kind of some random group of people out here who, yeah, they're, they're probably doing something they shouldn't do. And yeah, if they keep on doing that, things probably aren't going to turn all that good. All, you know, not really going to turn out good for them. And of course, as long as I keep thinking in those types of vague terms, well, then I'm not going to feel a whole lot of responsibility toward reaching those lost people. It's kind of like knowing about socks without ever actually putting some socks on. What we need to do is we need to put some very clear definitions, some very clear parameters before us about what it really means, how awful it is for a person to be lost. Because as we begin to build that, as we begin to explore that a little bit, what we'll find out is that the reality is the lost, the lost are usually good, moral people. They are. Sometimes when we talk about the lost, what we do, in fact, I'm guilty of this, is we use, let me give you the consummate example of being lost. Let me talk to you about Adolf Hitler. Or let me talk to you about Osama bin Laden. Or Charles Manson. Or use the Bible. Let's talk about Judas Iscariot. Those are notoriously wicked people. And by all accounts, we can probably be fairly confident that they were and they are eternally lost. Those are the poster boys for what we think of when we think of the idea of being lost. But my friend that I work with, my buddy who I go fishing with, who does not snort cocaine and who does not beat his wife, or that lady that I arrange playdates with for her kids and my kids to get together and we have coffee together. I mean, come on. She's never had an abortion. She would never even think of doing something like that. Or my next door neighbor, who really is a sweet person and a good neighbor and brings us vegetables from their garden. I mean, yeah, we do know there's some lost people out there somewhere. And if you were to press me a little bit, yes, I would have to admit that those people, they're, they're not part of the body of Christ. But to say that they are lost, those good moral folks, that they're lost and that they're bound for an eternity in hell fire. I mean, come on, who wants to actually say that? Do you see now why our evangelistic fervor is often just kind of blunted? We do not want to believe. We do not want to consider that our neighbor, our co-worker, our family member, our good friend has a lethal case of sin and that he or she could die eternally from that. How different things would be. If when I look in the faces of people each and every day, how different things would be if the first thought on my mind was, he's lost. Look at her. She's lost. They're going to miss out on an eternity with God. 
They're going to go to hell if something doesn't change. And when we talk about good moral folks, that's exactly what they are. They're good people. They make super neighbors. But they're still lost. And that's because doing good stuff, living a generally clean and moral life, that does not remove sin from your life. That does not put you into the body of Christ. Being a good husband, participating in the PTA, not cheating on your income taxes, that is not how you access and receive the grace of God, the salvation that He offers. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, we actually meet a fellow who is one of these good, moral people. In Acts chapter 10, we read about this guy by the name of Cornelius. And look at how this guy is described. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't get any more good or moral than this fella. In Acts chapter 10, look in verse 1. In Acts 10 verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, he prayed continually to God. Uh, look at this fella. This fellow really is as good as it gets. The Bible says he's a good man. And yet in chapter 11, turn the page, as Peter is recounting the events that concerned Cornelius, the text tells us in Acts 11 in verse 13 that he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter because he's going to declare to you, Cornelius, a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Cornelius was a good man, but Cornelius was not in Christ. Cornelius was a really good fellow, a good neighbor, but his sins had not been forgiven. Cornelius was not saved. In plain terms, Cornelius, prior to Peter teaching him the gospel and him obeying it, Cornelius was lost. He was. He was lost. And I think that serves to us as a very sobering and powerful reminder that oftentimes those good and moral people who surround us each day, who are around us all the time, we talk to them, we love them, we spend time with them, they are in all likelihood, they are in all likelihood lost. And these are the faces that we need to think of whenever we hear that word lost. Let's not think of the blank silhouette or a big group of people out there somewhere. We need to be able to put a face to that. I remember growing up, I would hear preachers talk about, and my dad would even use this terminology, he would talk about alien sinners. Extend the invitation. If you're an alien sinner, please respond to the gospel. And when you're real little, that kind of terminology really confuses you. Because what you're thinking is you're thinking of a little green man. Flying around on a spaceship. That's what you're thinking of when you're thinking of an alien sinner. And listen, I understand that's biblical terminology. We just read it a few moments ago in Ephesians chapter 2. But it can cause some problems in our mind. And I'm not saying we should never use the term alien sinner. It certainly is biblical. But sometimes when we use that kind of phraseology and that kind of jargon, it just gets in the way of us really recognizing who the lost are. It's your kid's teacher at school that you think so very much of. It's your buddy that you play Xbox with. It's that couple that you and your spouse befriended because each of your kids are on the same ball team. It's that co-worker that you sit next to and you see them five days a week. One of the starting points, I believe, 
for us re-energizing our evangelistic zeal is when we realize that the lost, the lost are not always murderous, drug-addicted, adulterous terrorists who hate God. Rather, most of the lost people that you and I are going to encounter on a day-to-day basis, they're good moral folks. They're people that you think a lot of. They are, they are Corneliuses, but they're lost. And that's a sad thing to say. But here's where the good news starts. These people are lost. And they're going to stay lost unless, unless you model for them what real, genuine Christianity really is. You know, we are living in what is often referred to as the information age. And that probably is a pretty good description of the times in which we live. Because have you ever noticed just how many messages that are being sent and how many different messages you receive in the course of just a single 24-hour day? And I'm not just talking about you know text messages and emails that you get on your phone, no. I'm talking about how everywhere you go and everywhere you turn and whatever it is that you are doing, there are messages being sent to you, messages being conveyed to you. Billboards are everywhere. Signs are everywhere. You turn on the television, fire up the internet. There's advertisements there. There's stuff being put in your face all the time. Have you ever noticed just how many you turn on like ESPN or maybe one of the 24-hour news channels? How many of those little scrolls are running across the bottom? It's not just enough for just one scroll at the bottom. There's usually like two or three of those scrolls at the bottom. And then over here on the side panel, there's all kinds of stats about the guy who's up at the plate getting ready to bat. And then up at the top, there's a scroll of Twitter comments that are coming in at various times. All kinds of information just being given to us and pressed toward us constantly. We are being fed messages of every sort. Let me ask you, who believes all of those messages? Who accepts just all of that information? How could you even sort through all of it? If you believe and you accepted all of the various messages that are put in front of your face every single day, you would, number one, you would become obsessed with the whiteness of your teeth. You would as well never be able to vote for any political candidate because the very next message that comes along says that the guy you just heard a message from is a complete idiot. Don't listen to him. And you probably would end up buying a new vehicle about every, I don't know, 13 seconds or so. We are living in an age of information. We're living in an age of too much information. And as a result, people today, you and I have to do this. We're having to filter out a lot of that information. We're having to filter out a lot of that talk. Can I ask you this? What do you think people are doing with all of the religious talk that they are bombarded with on a regular basis? Yeah, they're, they're filtering that out too. Because there's just so much of it. This person over here is saying this. And that person over there, they're saying that. And this church says this, and that religious group says that. And don't even get me started about what the religious preacher guy on television, the kind of stuff that he's saying. There's just lots and lots of talk today. But you want to know what's hard to ignore? You may be able to filter out all those messages that are being conveyed to you and the words that are being said to you. But you want me to tell you what's hard to ignore? A life that's being lived for Christ. When somebody is living out genuine Christianity, that's hard to ignore. Let's listen to Jesus on this in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges His hearers with these important words. In Matthew chapter 5, this is verse 13, Jesus says, You... 
are the salt of the earth. But if salt's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul echoes those sentiments in Colossians, please. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul says this in verse 5. In Colossians 4 and in verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. In other words, pay attention to how you behave toward the lost. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me cap that off with James chapter 1, please. In James chapter 1, James gives a great description of what pure and undefiled, genuine religion, what does it look like? And I'll have you notice that in James chapter 1 verse 27, James does not say pure and undefiled religion is a set of doctrines that you are able to communicate clearly to every person you come into contact with. That's not what James says. James says in James 1 verse 27, he says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, that is have a care and compassion for the weak, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All of these passages, and there's more we could have added to that, but all of these passages describe for us a life that is lived in a certain way, which then will afford us and grant us the opportunity to be heard. Because before we are ever going to be able to talk the talk, we're going to have to walk the walk. We're not going to have any kind of credibility. We're really not even going to have any kind of standing to say anything to a lost person if we are not first living out true Christianity in order for them to see. Which means, as I am being more and more conscious of who the lost are, And as I am more and more conscious of what the plight of the lost is, then the more and more conscious I am going to be of my conduct and my example and my influence for the lost. Everything from my choices in entertainment to the kind of clothes that I put on my body to the kind of jokes that I tell and laugh at to the kind of language that I am using, I'm going to be sure that I am living what I am professing. You know, one of the reasons that people stay lost is because they don't believe that there really is such a thing as genuine Christianity. What they've seen shown to them, what they've seen on the television, or maybe even what they've seen in their family and the people around them, it doesn't look anything like the kind of Christianity you can read about in the Bible. Everything they've seen... It just is tainted in some way. All the various messages that they are receiving in a religious fashion, it has led them to believe that, you know what, this religion stuff, this Christianity stuff, it's all just a big fat farce. Christian, you know what the lost need? The lost need you to show them. They need you to model for them what real Christianity is. And then, and then what they need... They need you to assist them in hearing and understanding and believing and obeying the gospel. What the lost need ultimately is they need you and they need me to teach them. 
while I would never want to sell short the power and the importance of a righteous example, and I always appreciate so much our brothers when they lead us in prayer and they pray, Lord, help us that we will set the right example for the world in which we live, to the people that are around us. I must tell you, as important as that is, there comes a point where you're going to have to open up your mouth and say something. Your example alone cannot teach someone about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Your example alone cannot refute a false doctrine or a false belief. Your example alone cannot teach someone about God's plan for man's salvation. In fact, if we just go along in life thinking that, well, it's just all about quietly living the Christian life and being a good example, if that's that all, if that's all that it was about, and if that's all that it took for lost people to say, oh, well, there's, they're, they're living like Christians, and so I guess I'm going to be a Christian now. If that's all that it took for people to be converted, then Jesus never would have sent those apostles out on the Great Commission and told them to teach. Paul would not have spent so much time traveling all over the world and going into synagogues every single week. And i got to tell you this, the book of Acts, the book of Acts would be considerably shorter, wouldn't it? Because in the book of Acts, what is the operable element again and again and again in every one of the conversions that are recorded there? It is a person, it is a Christian, who is, number one, living out genuine Christianity, but who then at some point opens up their mouth and shares the gospel of Christ. That's Peter going to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. That's Philip riding with the Ethiopian man in the chariot and talking about the Scriptures in Acts chapter 8. That's Aquila and Priscilla sitting down and studying with Apollos in Acts chapter 18. Over and over again. What is it? It is a Christian who has the conviction, number one, that this is a lost person. I care about this person. They're on the fast track to hell if something doesn't change here. And it is that person then having the courage and the compassion to teach that individual the truth of the gospel. Which is exactly why Paul says what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Would you find 2 Timothy 2? In 2 Timothy 2, this is a verse that You're in this verse. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this way. But you're somewhere in this verse. I am somewhere in this verse. In 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 2, Paul says this to his young brother Timothy. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those things to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. What Paul is envisioning here is a long chain of disciples. Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. Those faithful men to teach others. Those others to teach even more others. Maybe in heaven it makes me wonder, are we all just going to maybe just kind of just chain up? Hey, this one taught that one. And that one taught this one. And this one taught this one. And somewhere in that chain... It's going to be you and I. Where are you at in that change? Somebody taught you, right? You didn't just come out of the womb knowing the truth and knowing the gospel. Who taught you? And then more importantly, who are you teaching? In the next round of chain building, who are you teaching? Or is it possible that the chain's just going to stop with you? Are we content with that? Absolutely not. Who are you teaching? I'm going to say it one more time. The lost get saved. 
Whenever disciples, first of all, live out the Word of God in their lives, we model that in front of them. And then at some point, we open up our mouths and we say something. We teach the Word of God to them. That is exactly how that happens. This isn't rocket science. This isn't some kind of big special program. It's simple, basic stuff. One beggar showing another beggar where to find the bread. And just as that was necessary in the first century, it is still just as necessary in the 21st century. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in 2 Corinthians 4, notice what Paul says is a huge problem that causes people not just to get lost, but what causes people to stay lost. In 2 Corinthians 4, I just always say that this is just one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible to me. In 2 Corinthians 4 and in verse 3, Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Maybe we might say, the lost. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Many people are lost because they have been blinded. They have been lied to. They have been deceived by the God of this world. And that, of course, is Satan. And Satan is feeding them all kinds of lies. Satan is feeding them all kinds of religious lies, like just go to the church of your choice. Or God loves everybody too much to send anyone to hell. Or you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in that belief. Or hey, just pray this little prayer and accept some, accept the Lord into your heart and then you'll be saved. Those are the lies of the devil. That causes people to be blind to the reality of things. On top of that, Satan deceives the lost with, with the cares of this world. With all the stuff that is around them. When they chase after pleasure and fun and money and success. And they continue and tell themselves, that, hey, this is what life is all about. This is what's most important. Let me ask you, when Satan's telling them all of those lies, who is telling them otherwise? Who's telling them the truth? Who is getting them the information that they really need? Who has the courage to tell them what they actually need to hear? Who is it that is engaging in spiritual conversations with the lost? Who is it that is offering the lost a sermon CD or a track or a link to something on the website? Who is there to answer a Bible question? Who is asking the lost, hey, can we set up a Bible study sometime? You know who the lost are. It's those good, moral people that you cross paths with every single day. And you know what the plight is of those people. That they are outsiders. That they are sinners in need of the grace and forgiveness of Christ. They are bound for hell if something does not change. And you know as well what it is that they need. They need your righteous example. And then on top of that, they need you to teach them. And so I'll ask again, if you're not going to do it, then pray tell, who is? What, what, what are we here for? If all we're here for is to come and huddle up together a couple times on Sunday, and then we'll do it again on Wednesday night, then that's actually kind of a pretty miserable existence, I've got to tell you. And that's really far afield from what the Scripture describes God's people are to be about. And can I show you what God's people are to be about? Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, one final passage. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that one of the very reasons as to why we have been saved 
is so that we can then do the very thing that we're talking about today. And that is to reach the laws. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9, these wonderful descriptions of who God's people are. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Peter says here, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, I'm in 2 Peter, I know that didn't look right. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession. Man! Boy, it's great to be in Christ. It's great to be a Christian. Peter continues on. Why are you these things? So that you may proclaim. Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We have been called as the people of God to be proclaimers so that others who are lost and are drowning in sin, those who are in the darkness, they may come and they may share in the marvelous light. And I will remind you that results come when we do that. Results are not measured by how many wet noses we can get under that water back there. That's not what this is about. Results come Whenever you and I plant and water the seed. Simple as that. God, He's going to take care of the rest from there. He's really good at that. He's going to give the growth. We just need to do our job of proclaiming so that the Lord can see to it that the lost get found. And so, what do you know about putting on socks? It's a pretty foundational matter if you're going to play basketball. More importantly, what do you know about the lost? Because those are foundational matters if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. The lost are in a terrible, terrible predicament. And it is up to you and me to allow ourselves to be used as instruments in the hands of God in order to bring about the change that is needed in their circumstance. Because the bottom line is, really when you add all of that up, is that the lost, they're hopeless. They have no hope of enjoying the abundant life that Jesus promises. They have no hope of hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of the Lord. The lost are absolutely, utterly hopeless unless unless someone who gets it, someone who has the compassion, and the conviction, and the courage, Resolves that I'm going to do something and I'm going to say something. You know who that someone needs to be? That someone needs to be you. I need everybody right now, as we've talked about and as we've thought about the loss, the characteristics of the loss, I need you right now to put a face to that description. This lesson's really kind of meaningless. If we all just go out of here and all we're thinking of is the faceless silhouette. I need you to put a real face when you hear that word lost. Who do you know personally that that you maybe interact with in some fashion, maybe on a daily basis? Who do you know that fits that bill? Let's stop thinking about the lost in big, broad, general terms. Let's just think about one face. Let's put one face on that silhouette. And then ask yourself, what am I going to do about that? What am I going to say to that person? What am I going to do to help that lost individual to get found?
I said it at the beginning of the lesson, and I'm going to say it again right now. This lesson cannot just be about learning something. This lesson has to be about doing something. Now, perhaps right now, there is someone sitting in this audience who, as we've talked about these things, you have come to the recognition, maybe you even knew this before you came in this morning, that you are lost. And I realized this morning, we maybe have not been talking directly to you, but we most certainly have been talking about you. And I hope what has been impressed upon you is the seriousness of your present condition. Because you are, you are, you are outside of Christ. You are in sin. And you are in desperate need of forgiveness. And you are bound for an eternity in hell. You will not be with God in heaven for all of eternity unless something changes. And guess what? You have the opportunity right now to change that. I've been telling all the Christians here this morning that this can't just be about learning something. It has to be about doing something. Well, guess what? If you're lost, this needs to be about doing something right now. The Lord has been very gracious. The Lord has been merciful to give you this opportunity to be in this assembly this morning to hear these things and to hopefully be convicted of where you stand and that I need to change all that today by confessing Jesus as God's Son, repenting and turning from sin, and being baptized in water for the remission of my sins. If we can help you to do that, We want to do that. We're ready to do that. You maybe just have questions. Maybe you're just kind of in your journey. You're trying to figure some stuff out. Let's sit down and talk. Let's set up a study. and Let's figure out what the Word of God has to say. Brother or sister, if you've not been living right, if you were once in a position where you were found and you were in Christ, but maybe you've drifted to a point where you're now, you're not even really sure if you are in Christ anymore. Maybe you are totally outside of Christ once again. You need to fix that. You need to repent. Come back to the Lord. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us help you in some way. Whatever your need may be, let's not any of us leave here today with that terrible title of lost above our heads. Let's leave here knowing that we are saved because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save us. If you need to respond to the invitation, do that right now while we stand and while we sing.